Welcome to the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. In this series, we'll bring you 12 of the best talks from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime. This episode is called The Missing Links, Explaining the Absence of Debate on Transnational Organised Crime in India. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. We are honoured to have you with us. My name is Prem Mahadevan and I will be moderating this session. Today we examine the question of why there is so little debate about transnational organized crime in India. The country is projected to become the world's most populous in 2023. It is already the world's fifth largest economy. It has the second largest diaspora after China. Yet, if one looks at the academic literature on transnational organized crime, one sees a heavy focus on Eastern Europe and particularly the post-Soviet space. According to a very prominent writer in the field of transnational organized crime, writing in 2008, a general belief and observation is that, I quote him, the collapse of the Soviet Union is the single most important cause of the exponential growth in organized crime that we have seen around the world in the last two decades, end quote. Much of the narrative around TOC since the 1990s has focused on the collapse of the Soviet Union and of former Yugoslavia. Yet, India and China, two states that also transitioned out of socialism and to a new economic model are hardly ever discussed. Is this because they did not experience a political collapse or is this because of intellectual laziness on the part of scholars and researchers? Is it that Cold War era Kremlinologists focus so heavily on Eastern Europe that they overlooked Asia? We will be discussing this question in the, during the course of our roundtable panel today. From my side, I have spent the last year researching on Chinese criminal networks. From academic sources, it is evident that China too faced similar problems as did Russia with adjusting from, from the transition from communism and socialism to capitalism, or rather state-led uh, capitalism. The problems were not on the same scale though. Uh, the world was not looking closely enough at China to notice, perhaps there was no uh, regional or country expertise. But what we do see is that the reforms that followed Deng Xiaoping's 1992 Southern Tour actually led to an increase in elite corruption and in violent street, street level criminality in China. The same applies to India. India liberalized its economy in 1991. What followed was a growing frequency of political scams and violent crime. But this was overlooked by experts. Part of the problem was due to a lack of data. That in itself is a weak excuse, however. India has a relatively free and open society. China, on the other hand, has a totalitarian state structure with, a all, with an all-encompassing system of censorship. In both countries, local gangs operate with political patronage and police protection. Yet India seems almost as difficult as China to conduct research on organized crime in. Why is that? To brainstorm this question, we have an exceptionally high-powered roundtable of experts. I'm pleased to introduce them in the order in which they will be speaking. Our first speaker today will be Dr. Ajay Sani. Dr. Sani is Executive Director of the Institute of Conflict Management in New Delhi. 
His path-breaking research has led to policy changes within India, most notably efforts to improve the police-to-population ratio. Dr. Sani has developed a unique database of terrorism-related statistics that has for two decades been the standard reference point for research on South Asian militancy. As a veteran of the policy research community, he is uniquely placed to explain why there is no comparable body of research on organized crime in India. Our second speaker will be Mr. Sandeep Unnithan. Mr. Unnithan is editor of News 9 Plus, a leading Indian broadcaster. Over a highly illustrious career, he has reported on such topics as the Mumbai Mafia, counterterrorism, and maritime security. He is the author of Black Tornado, a riveting account of the 2611 terrorist attack on Mumbai. Mr. Unnithan hails from Mumbai and, as such, has deep insight into the social dynamics of the city and its links with maritime smuggling. He has closely observed the rise and fall of factional violence within the city's underworld. Our third speaker will be Professor Natalia Galisheva. Professor Galisheva is head of the World Economy Department at MGIMO University in Moscow. She served for four years with the Russian Consulate General in Mumbai during the late 1990s. Professor Galisheva has extraordinary insights into how the Indian economy developed following partial reforms in 1991. She is uniquely qualified to help us understand to what extent macroeconomic factors affected societal stability and how well India handled its economic transition. Our fourth speaker will be Dr. Milan Vaishnav. Dr. Vaishnav is director of the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He is the author of the book, When Crime Pays, Money and Muscle in Indian Politics. The book examines in detail the criminalization of politics in the world's largest democracy. Dr. Vaishnav has studied the local processes by which voters make electoral choices and how these choices impact governance quality. He is uniquely placed to help us understand the dynamics of political mafias. Our last speaker will be Dr. Vanda Felber Brown. Dr. Felber Brown is director of the Initiative on Non-State Armed Actors at the Brookings Institution. She is the world's foremost expert on illicit markets. Her experience in fieldwork encompasses roughly two dozen countries. Among these is India, where Dr. Felber Brown has conducted research on wildlife trafficking and on water mafias. She can help us see patterns of similarity and difference based on her own observations of organized crime in different parts of the world. To all our distinguished speakers, the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime warmly expresses its gratitude for sharing your knowledge with us. To quickly go about the explaining the order of business, we will proceed through an opening round of questions with one question directed to each speaker by myself. Each speaker will be addressed in turn and then once the questions have been answered, the speakers will be invited in their turn, in the reverse order in which they spoke, to ask questions of each other. Around 50 minutes into the session, my colleagues and I in the conference secretariat will go through the audience questions and pose some of them to the speakers. I would like to begin with an opening question for Dr. Ajay Sani. Dr. Sani. When an Indian person thinks of organized crime, the name of Dawood Ibrahim and his D company is perhaps the first that comes to mind. 
For those who are unaware, Dawood Ibrahim is an Indian origin gangster who has been designated as a global terrorist by the US government. Ibrahim is believed to live in Pakistan, a claim the Pakistani government routinely denies. My question to Dr. Sani is why, given the threat of a crime terror nexus and the implications of overseas-based gangsters being used to carry out subversive activities, has there been so little effort to comprehensively map out international criminal networks in India? Over to you, sir. Yeah, now, Prem, uh, as far as uh, Dawood Ibrahim is concerned, his position is certainly unique. Uh, it's not as if uh, organized crime in India starts with Dawood Ibrahim. If you even take the Bombay uh, uh, crime uh, uh, networks, uh, he was preceded by a very, very organized uh, uh, setup headed by Haji Mastan. Uh, and with uh, the more important names were uh, people like Vardaraj and Mudadiyar and uh, uh, some other uh, associates of his. Uh, now, they dominated uh, uh, the uh, organized crime uh, setup for years. Uh, and it was only after Dawood uh, comes in that there was a sudden change in the very texture of organized crime uh, in Mumbai, in India. Uh, he was he brought in a very very much more violent uh, uh, kind of pattern of uh, criminality uh, it's not a, as if the others were not violent but he was far more violent he brought in drugs now the earlier uh, groups had never uh, gone in karim lalla uh, haji bastan badalia had never gone in for uh, uh, drug smuggling so that was a ma major shift but most importantly you must uh, recognize that all these groups prior to the Dawood, were essentially organized criminal groups which worked collusively with the state. They never confronted the state. Uh, Dawood Ibrahim, in 1993, orchestrated what is till date the worst terrorist attack in India, a series of bombings in Mumbai, uh, in which 257 people were killed, more almost 600 or 700 people were injured. So uh, you had a complete shift in terms of a generational shift in the enormity of what was done. Then he goes across into Pakistan and begins to run not just a criminal network from there, but also to run a uh, uh, arrangement with the inter-services intelligence of facilitating terrorist movement, uh, the movement of weaponry, uh, facilitation of terrorist operations in, uh, uh, in India, but also across other theaters, wherever he was tasked. So this is a man who is not only an organized crime uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, actor, he's also a terrorist designated both by India and the United States, a 25 million reward on his head, uh, and nobody can find him, which is a, a rather surprising since everybody seems to know where he lived. Uh, it's a, it's a, and he survived for 50 years in crime. He established himself in the 70s, and he's still around. So uh, I think that gives him the very unique position that he is in. Now, why have we not spent more time and effort and resource on researching organized crime since it has such an impact? And now it has an increasing overlay with terrorist organizations, not just in Mumbai, not just with the Dawood gang, but multiple. In Punjab, you have the Khalistanis overlapping with the drug smuggling, which is a very, very major operation. So why doesn't it get researched? Multiple reasons. I will quickly go through them since our time is limited. Uh, first of all, you must understand there is a great deal of information available, but it is far uh, completely dispersed. 
the information is more reflected in popular culture than in research or even in reportage. Uh, why is this? First, there is no consolidated data available. You mentioned data as an issue. Data is a very important issue. Uh, and it's very difficult to get to this data for a simple reason that there is, it, it is not an IPC, Indian Penal Code crime. That is, it is not a central crime, uh, organized crime. There is no law to deal with organized crime at the center. So there is no centralized database. You have a crime in India which doesn't really look at uh, uh, organized crime because there's no IPC uh, section. Uh, the states, some of the states have got, many states now have got uh, uh, local laws, um, the Maharashtra Control of Organized Crime Act, the UP Control of Gujarat Control of, uh, uh, Control of Organized Crime Act, all of them similar and overlapping. Uh, but these databases are completely, or whatever, they, these records, I won't even call them databases because they are not consolidated. There is no research going on. So you again have some information uh, which would be researchable, but it is dispersed to the state, the states. There is no access. Even if you seek access, the cost of access would be enormous because, as I said, this is dispersed information. This is in uh, 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 thanas, uh, in, in police stations where FIRs are recorded, uh, or if it is uh, sent into the new. Uh, uh, centralized database, it is there as individual crimes, murder, uh, you know, uh, uh, theft, intimidation, whatever. Now, for instance, if you take crime in India, which is the consolidated report uh, from the center, uh, they record that in 2021, and this is the only da datum given for organized crime, that the Maharashtra Control of uh, uh, Crimes uh, Act, Organized Crime Act, had 60 cases registered in 2021. This is absurd. I mean, it is completely nonsensical. But then you come back to the same thing. Operatives of organized criminal gangs would be documented for individual crimes under all sorts of other sections of criminality. You again do not even have at the state level a consolidation under the Maharashtra uh, uh, Organized Crime Act. So then you have the next stage of difficulty, the problem of methodology. There is no given methodology. There are no systems within government for research. You, you need research which is embedded within the enforcement structure. Now, uh, an enforcement structure is unlikely to be spending very much time to uh, uh, do research. Then you have to understand that this, I think, is the most important deterrent to setting up institutions and encouraging and resourcing uh, research. This is the fact that organized crime is a collusive crime. It involves the state and its actors. When we go back to 1993, you may recall they would, uh, there was this uh, report by the then uh, Home Secretary, the Union Home Secretary, Anand Vora, and he said that there is a criminal bureaucratic politician nexus. And unless this is addressed, we are not going to be able to resolve the problem of organized crime. The same applies to resolving the problem of researching organized crime. Now, I'm sure this is going to come up later with other speakers, but you must understand the degree of criminalization of Indian politics. 42% of the Union Council of Ministers current has criminal cases against them. 24 of these 78, that is 31% of ministers, were charged with what is called serious crime. 
Similarly, 43% of uh, uh, you know, uh, members of the Lok Sabha, uh, uh, the lower house of parliament, have criminal charges pending against them, 29% for serious crime. The situation in the legislative assemblies is similar. So who is going to press for research on a subject which would uh, uh, implicate those who make the laws and those who uh, uh, apply the laws? And when we come to the Western literature on the subject, I'll just make a very quick uh, concluding remark on that. Uh, they haven't focused on India, partly because of the problem of uh, information and also because organized crime in India has international uh, uh, linkages for organized crime in India have largely been inward flowing. Or as in the case of drugs today, uh, where you have India as a major transit uh, point, uh, they are not the critical uh, operatives. They are only a transit. Then the transits are multiple. US, Sri Lanka is also transit. Uh, uh, Thailand is also a tra transit. Maldives is also transit. So you have many transit points. The source is uh, the Afpakh region. So that, that's where if any literature is available in the West, it's uh, uh, focusing on these countries. Uh, finally, I'd just say there has been a proliferation of think tanks in India in the recent uh, decades, but these are mostly advocacy groups who are uh, promoting certain political and ideological positions or corporate interests. They do, there is not much funding going around for a focused research on organized crime. I overshot myself, but I'll end there. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. That was extremely helpful. And uh, I, I think actually we're all going to overshoot. We know that. But it, if that keeps the conversation flowing, if that keeps us sharing ideas and information, that's perfectly fine. It's part of the game. And I'd, I think your point actually about the information being dispersed is important. I, I remember when I was researching on terrorism in the Indian Punjab, police intelligence on drug smugglers, on uh, counter-terrorism and on counter-intelligence. The police files had to be brought together, fused together in, a, in an all-source uh, fusion center um, so that people could actually start looking at patterns by which drug smugglers were in, involved in supporting terrorism and were being supported by foreign countries, essentially. I would like to um, ask the next question to, doctors, uh, to Mr. Sandeep Unitan. And actually, Dr. Sani has also already referred to this point about popular culture. Mr. Unitan, a lot of the popular imagery that surrounds Indian organized crime focuses on the Mumbai mafia, of which the uh, D company, Dawood Ibrahim's gang is a part. And the imagery particularly comes from the city's film industry. Serious investigative journalism, however, seems to be scarce. What are the reasons for this? Is it that journalists are hesitant to explore questions about police and political collusion with the underworld? Or is there a lack of editorial support for such stories? Or is there a lack of data because there are, after all, national security implications to the question of transnational organized crime? Over to you, sir. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Prem. Uh, you know, I'd like to say that it's a combination of all the factors that you mentioned. Uh, because, uh, you know, until a couple of uh, years ago, there was a lot of active um, investigations into the criminal uh, politician networks. Um, uh, stars that were involved with the underworld were routinely called out. Uh, they were named and shamed and there were a lot of, uh, you know, press coverage given to them. But off late in the last couple of uh, years, one sees that this kind of reportage has kind of literally dried up. And uh, as you mentioned, one of the reasons is that 
a lot of media houses tend to discourage this kind of reportage investigative journalism uh, especially when it concerns the crime politician and uh, uh, police nexus that has kind of uh, dried up and i was uh, talking to a friend of mine in mumbai one of the top investigative journalists there and he was telling me about how uh, he had this really big expose on a very prominent uh, politician of mumbai and his uh, you know a criminal nexus that he had and uh, uh, you know they were in league with a builder and they were creating this huge scam and uh, his paper had promised to publish that on the front page uh, but the the very day that this was to actually uh, you know be published uh, his paper had gone ahead and you know uh, uh, signed a commercial deal with that particular builder and so there was no question of carrying that uh, story and this we've been seeing a pattern of this happening in the last uh, couple of years as celebrities become more important to media houses and uh, news organizations and tv channels the kind of adverse uh, reportage that an investigative journalism uh, investigative journalist story would uh, entail is uh, somewhat inconvenient and that's the reason that they're buried and let's not forget that the case of uh, jade a, a very prominent investigative journalist uh in 2011 was bumped off uh, by the underworld by chota rajan's uh, gangsters uh, just when he was you know prepared to uh, write a story on uh, uh, the, uh, uh, something very sensational that this particular gang was involved in and uh, one really doesn't know you know the entire truth of that that hasn't really been investigated uh, to its logical outcome so there have been a very uh, a series of such incidents and uh, the mumbai underworld as dr sani mentioned i mean that itself is you know it's it's uh, evolved from that very uh, basic um uh, thing of small gangsters the karim lalas the varadaraja mudalyas and uh, you know uh, yusuf patels and it's gone up to daud ibrahim and daud ibrahim's rise in the 80s in the early 80s marked the kind of corporatization of the underworld of the mumbai underworld and it still remains to a force in being it's not as in your face as it used to be about uh, two decades ago when they had shootouts and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, you know extortion threats where prominent builders and film personalities were at the receiving end but uh, it continues to be um, uh, you know uh, out there it's out it's not in your face anymore it's truly underground but that also kind of uh, you know to answer what you said uh, that uh, they have their links with the film industry they have links with builders but none of that is being investigated primarily because they've kind of uh, not been doing the kind of sensational shootouts the extortion threats of the last 20 years the underworld has kind of gone quiet uh especially since the early 2000s uh, there have not been any ma- major shootouts as such the police encounters these uh, you know sticky encounters typically the what what used to be called for uh, you know it, uh, a lot of people say that these were actually extrajudicial killings but those have gone down as well and the underworld is kind of receded in the background they're there they still control all the networks they still run the drugs they still do the gold smuggling but they all pretty much receded in the background but the question of course is that it's not so much uh, uh, you know it's a, it's an inconvenient truth actually the investigating of these links that they have with the 
uh, politicians and uh, you know uh, the bureaucrats and the police. Uh, as uh, Dr. Sani mentioned, this fact that the Enenvora Committee report that was brought out in 1993 has still not been revealed to the public after nearly three decades. And uh, it's just about some fragments of it have been released, but the entire report um, have, uh, has not been revealed to the public. It's one of the most uh, baffling uh, you know, uh, occurrences of the last few years that a, a report as sensitive as that has still not been released to the Indian public. And one only uh, can imagine the kind of uh, data and uh, revelations that that report might have had. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Nathan. Actually, we're going to be we're going to be coming back to this. But you talked about the crime politics nexus. You talked about um, you know the, the fact that there is a lack of investigative interest actually in investigation. I think all that is extremely relevant because it, eventually the media is supposed to basically. Uh, journalism, I think, is writing the first draft of history. I think there's a quote like that. And we all, researchers, even if we do field work, we do fundamentally rely on the media to guide us and orient us. And if there is no media reportage, then we're operating essentially in terra incognita. My next question is for Professor Natalia Galisheva. Professor Galisheva, both the Russian Federation and India were forced by circumstances to adopt economic policies that transform their societies. We in India looked to Russia, previously the Soviet Union, as an elder brother, as a role model society that would guide us and help us develop. And um, we were also adversely affected, very much so, by the events of 1991. Now, there has been much commentary since then about how during the 1990s, criminal networks emerged in major Russian cities as a result of the privatization of industries and disruption in the labor market. Russia has dramatically changed since then, as has India. Going by your own observations of living in Mumbai during that time, would it be correct to say that the economic reforms of 1991 triggered a rise of mafia-like societies in India or that it created disruptions in Indian society? Professor Galeshiva. Okay, thank you very much. Um, yes, you are quite right that uh, both India and um, uh, the US, uh, Russian, uh, the Russian Federation uh, started uh, liberal reforms in uh, 1991, exactly uh, Russia in 1992. But we can't say that uh, these liberal reforms are the same uh, because uh, the former USSR and India were countries of different economic social models. Uh, that's why um, uh, this sense uh, of liberal economic reforms are different. The former USSR was a socialist state uh, that is at the command of the administrative economy, and India was a capitalist state um, that is at the model of the state uh, capitalism. Yes, um, um, in um, um, the first uh, resolution, uh, industrial resolution, um, um, uh, stated that uh, India, that was adopted, uh, by the way, in 1948, that India um, will be the society of socialist pattern. But uh, the uh, model of uh, Indian economy was uh, the state capitalism. That's why, uh, once again, um, the sense of uh, liberal economic reforms uh, in India and in Russia are different. 
uh, specific features of uh, liberal reforms in India uh, and the Russia are the following. You are, uh, you've already mentioned that, that uh, there was uh, the process of uh, privatization in Russia. Uh, and uh, if uh, we, uh, can we say it about India? No. Um, even the word privatization is not used in Indian um, economic literature. Uh, usually um, uh, economists and uh, uh, analytics uh, use the word disinvestment. Uh, that's why uh, as it wasn't uh, the process of uh, privatization in India, the results uh, of economic reforms uh, um, are not uh, as bad as uh, they are in Russia, they were in Russia. Besides, uh, if we compare the role of state, uh, the role of uh, public sector in Russia and in India within 1990s and uh, the beginning of the 21st century, uh, um, once again, the same, um, uh, the role uh, of state are different. Um, uh, um, the role of state, uh, the role of public sector was uh, drastically decreased in Russia in 1990s. Uh, and uh, can we see it in India? Of course, once again, no. So that's why, uh, in my opinion, uh, we can't say that uh, liberal reforms significantly uh, uh, badly influenced on uh, um, the situation with uh, organized crime in India. Um, liberal economic reforms didn't significantly affect uh, social stability in India. Uh, thanks uh, to uh, the process of disinvestment, it was uh, quite reasonable. And in my opinion, it is uh, much more reasonable than uh, the process of privatization in uh, Russia. Uh, and uh, um, so that's why um, uh, these reforms uh, didn't seriously add, but at the same time, frankly speaking, didn't subtract from society uh, social stability in India and uh, public security against organized crime. Even the share of uh, um, unobserved, or now we use uh, the word the shadow, um, uh, previously shadow economy, now we use uh, the word the unobserved economy. Uh, if we compare the share of um, unobserved economy uh, in India 1991 and nowadays, uh, it is a, uh, slightly decreased. decreased. Uh, in 1991, uh, the share of unobserved economy was approximately 23% of GDP. Nowadays, it is uh, just uh, approximately 18%. Uh, so, um, uh, but um, as uh, our speakers uh, have already mentioned, uh, yes, uh, the situation is uh, rather uh, difficult with uh, organized crime in India. Uh, but in my opinion, uh, what is uh, responsible for? Um, yes, uh, the pharmaceutical industry that uh, has been uh, developing rather uh, quickly nowadays in Russia, uh, in India, uh, it can add uh, some, um, um, uh, some uh, slight uh, influence uh, on um, organized crime. Besides uh, uh, diamond processing industry it is uh, also uh, has been um, developing very quickly since uh, the beginning of uh, liberal reforms um, that's why um, um, but uh, but at the same time uh, if we are talking about um, the uh, major economic challenges that Indian policymakers have failed to overcome over the last uh, 30 years the period of economic reforms that uh, can uh, some uh, add uh, to um, um, uh, worse uh, the situation with organized crime. That is, of course, uh, social sector problems, uh, pover uh, poverty and hunger, or better say, undernourishment, undernourishment. Then, a 
low income and the salaries uh, salaries which are significantly contribution to poverty um, the inefficient uh, pension system uh, then um, illiteracy rate uh, that is rather uh, high in India nowadays that is approximately uh, 28% um, so everything um, uh, these um, specific features of uh, social sector uh, can influence uh, rather badly on uh, organized crime situation in India. Then uh, besides, of course, economic problems uh, such as regional disparities in India, then a lack or we can say shortage of capital resources for business. Uh, so uh, in uh, this uh, um, case, yes, uh, some um, uh, some um, um, uh, as, um, uh, liberal reforms in some aspects can be considered uh, as a slight trigger. But once again, uh, if we compare Indian uh, situation and Russian situation, of course, uh, in Russia, the situation with organized uh, crime was much worse than in India with the 1990s and uh, the beginning of the 21st century. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Galesheva. It is... Um... It is. It was deeply educative to listen to you, and uh, to be honest, actually, it was a little reassuring that we did not do so badly during the 1990s. If you if you look at now how Russia has dominated and overcome its problem of organized crime, it is actually in in some ways an inspirational story, given how bad things were in the 1990s. Um, while we return to looking at the particularities of India, my next question is for Dr. Milan Vaishnav. Dr. Vaishnav. The criminalization of politics has been touched upon already in the course of during the course of this panel. Um, now, it's a topic that has been written about in India for several decades. There has been growing public anger over political corruption, yet despite general awareness about political patronage of mafias, as well as well-reported scam investigations in the 1990s and the 2000s, there seems to have been no effort towards dismantling the politics crime nexus. In your opinion, does such inaction come down to uh, inherent Indian fatalism, a kind of a complementarity between awareness and indifference on the part of Indian voters? And if so, if you would agree with this proposition, do you see any way, even in the long term, to break this impasse? Dr. Vaishnav. Thank you very much, Prem, and thanks for your question, and thanks to my panelists. Um, I don't think that this can be chalked up to uh, unique Indian culture or social customs. Um, I think there's something much more systematic uh, and, quite frankly, very rational going on. And the analogy that I've used uh, over the years to talk about this is to think about politics as a, as a marketplace, as an electoral marketplace. And like any market, there are supply and demand factors that make the market. Um, and if you if you apply that simple framework to thinking about this question, I, I think you can sort of demystify some of what's going on. So if you take the supply side, which is why is it that criminals or people with criminal associations are being injected into the political bloodstream? Uh, you have to ask why parties are putting these candidates forward, right? And I think where that line of inquiry takes you very quickly is to the outsized role that money plays in Indian politics today. As the costs of elections have gone through the roof over the past several decades for numerous reasons, parties have not dedicated themselves to the hard work, the organizational hard work of building uh, robust organizations finding ways to uh, uh, to 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 keep their fiscal 
coffers uh, 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 in sync with the needs of those elections. And so they have been increasingly thrust into the embrace of what I call self-financing candidates. These are individual candidates with deep pockets who are self-financing in the following sense. They, of course, can cover the costs of their own campaign, but they're also willing to pay parties for the privilege of running uh, under their party label. They're willing to subsidize uh, less wealthy candidates who are allied with them in some way and and and, and, and willing and able to engage also in, in the larger kinds of rent seeking that many party and party elites engage in. Um, so I think that money is really central and the way in which political finance works and is regulated or is not regulated in India is central to understanding how these individuals uh, get put forward on the ballot. But I think the even more interesting question is, and this really gets to the heart of your question, is what's going on with the voter, right? Because if we really do believe that these are largely free and fair elections, we have electronic voting machines. Most Indians, according to public opinion surveys, believe uh, that the secret uh, ballot is in fact secret. Uh, why are voters uh, choosing uh, these uh, candidates? And here, I think um, uh, the story is quite rich and quite layered. And, and the, the simple argument that I'd put forward to kind of boil it down is that in a context where social divisions like caste and religion, for instance, run rife, and where the rule of law is weak or uh, weakly applied, that is, the government is not seen as a impartial or effective arbiter of the kinds of basic sovereign functions that states are supposed to perform, uh, these two things interact and create an opening for criminal entrepreneurs who basically use their criminality as a sign of credibility to get things done for their constituents, right? To provide uh, a modicum of safety, to provide a sense of social insurance, to intervene in the administration and delivery of benefits and services from the state. Uh, to adjudicate disputes, things that, again, the state should be doing on an even-handed basis, but for reasons we can't get into now, ha has not been, right? And so this is not a case of ignorant voters. It is not a case of uh, illiterate voters, necessarily. It is voters who are making a strategic calculation, not because they want to elect a criminal, but because they believe that this person uh, might be able to better represent their interests in a very uncertain and difficult world when they don't believe uh, that the state necessarily is looking after them. Now, what are the solutions? Uh, it, it, you know, if this were just about information, one could think about rolling out massive civic education campaigns, about investing in media infrastructure. But this goes to to two very important, deeper, much more complex policy domains. One is campaign finance reform, and on that. You know, the need of the hour is to reduce the importance of money in politics, improve the degree of transparency. And frankly, India has been moving in the opposite direction. If you look at the developments over the past several years, they have essentially legitimized through legislation and law uh, the opacity in the system through uh, new instruments like electoral bonds, like creating a more permissive environment for foreign funding, eliminating the need for corporations to list on their annual profit and loss statements the kinds of transactions and contributions they're making. Um, and so we all know what needs to be done, but unfortunately we're moving in the opposite direction. And just finally, uh, I, I think the, the, the most important need of the day is really building governance from the, from the ground up.
Uh, there's really no shortcuts to that because until and unless the citizen sees the state as having their best interests at heart, uh, they will uh, continue to rely on an intermediary who is able to sort of grease the wheels and work the system, right? So uh, that means a whole suite of things, including uh, plugging endemic vacancies that, that, that exist at every level of government. Uh, that means really taking seriously decentralization to the, what we call the third tier of government, that is government at the municipal and the village level, um, that is the closest to the people and empowering them and holding them accountable. And then I do think technology has a role to play, not as a substitute for state capacity, but as a, as a way to augment state capacity. We have seen some studies that show that um, this has successfully, the use of technology in delivering transfers and benefits, has cut out the middleman and, and reduced certain amount of corruption. It introduces new problems like uh, uh, um, infrastructural problems, uh, people not able to access the technology. So it's not a panacea, but I do think it's moving the conversation in the right direction. Thank you, Dr. Vaishnav. Actually, um, you've touched upon many points here, but one particularly leapt out at me where you talked about Indian political parties not having a robust internal system, actually being kind of, uh, to some extent, petty tyrannies at the local level. Uh, it reminds me of uh, a study that came out some months ago, which asked why Indians tend to emigrate out of the country, even as it's going more pro becoming more prosperous. And apparently, uh, the finding was that although India is definitely a democracy and it, it has a it grants its citizens a lot of freedoms, particularly at the at the federal level and at the political level, at the societal and cultural level, India is very conservative still. It still has elements of feudalism in it. And um, this means that sometimes, no matter how liberal the state itself might be or how enlightened it might be, the reality of people on the ground is that they're dealing with a very patriarchal society and one where, um, be honest, any kind of competition, even electoral competition between uh, candidates is not really appreciated and is rigged in favor of the stronger party. We finally come to our last speaker, uh, Dr. Banda Felber-Brown, who can help us zoom out of the national picture and look at India from a global perspective. Dr. Felber-Brown, based on your studies of organized crime in India and your very deep understanding of the country and its cultural rifts, its divisions and its complexity, what in your assessments are the key obstructors of a policy response? Is it that elite corruption prevents an honest debate on criminal risks or is it that community sympathies for gangsters block government action, blocks government action? Uh, do you observe deficiencies in state capacity at the local level, which have prevented the police from being able to control mafia style criminality? You have studied organized crime in a range of contexts, including Latin America and Africa. How would you compare India's operational realities with these other contexts? Dr. Felber Brown. Well, um, thank you. L let me start with. Um doing the comparative study before, uh, or doing the comparative uh, quick review before I come to the questions of, of policy responses or their lack of. So how does India compare uh, to Colombia, to Mexico, to um, Italy, for example? What are the various illegal economies in India and organized crime groups? India is one of the world's leading countries in human trafficking and smuggling. A lot of its centers um, in India itself does not cross the border, uh, but there are uh, also significant flows uh, of 
on human smuggling and trafficking across the border uh, between Nepal and India in other surrounding countries. India is a very significant actor in wildlife poaching and trafficking. This goes not uh, just to uh, tigers and other big cats, which generates often most media coverage, but applies to wide uh, classes of animals, be they reptiles, uh, tortoises, uh, turtles and tortoises, but also birds, rhinos, um, elephants. Illegal logging is also very widespread and heavily uh, organized uh, with strong penetrations of both mafia and industry. This is illegal logging in the country, whether it's for sourcing hardwoods like rosewood for traffic to China and elsewhere, for domestic market and deforestation to generate land. There are very significant uh, cross-border flows um, between Myanmar and Nepal and India. But at the same time, Indian logging company are some of the dirtiest companies, uh, Indian logging companies operating abroad are some of the dirtiest companies engaged in wide set of corruption and illegal logging practices in places like Indonesia, for example. There is tremendous amount of illegal fishing uh, around the subcontinent. Um, uh, and sometimes this gives rise to conflict with fishermen in countries like Sri Lanka and Pakistan. Uh, but the illegal fishing is not simply artisanal around the surrounding waters. India's large fishing fleets are perhaps not as notorious as Japanese, Chinese, or European Union fishing fleets, but nonetheless, they engage in very devastating, very extensive illegal logging. Um, India is deeply implicated in gold smuggling. We heard from um, uh, uh, Natalia about uh, the role in diamond smuggling. Gold smuggling is another uh, example. And again, this is a combination of both criminalized actors that we think about as mafias, but also large industry leaders. For example, one um, uh, example to point out today is the vast uh, gold smuggling by the Wagner Group that heads into Dubai and the United Arab Emirates and where Indian uh, traders, big Indian uh, gold companies, as well as individual traders and organized crime groups, play very significant role in longer of that gold. Drug uh, smuggling is another uh, example, and I would say it's one of the largest uh, illegal economies in India and deeply unappreciated uh, in the scope and role that India plays, not simply in poppy cultivation and heroin production, lots of which supplies the internal market, but really in the fentanyl and synthetic drugs market um, uh, aspects with uh, India a significant supplier of precursors as well as um, um, uh, as well as finished synthetic drugs, such as to the United States, but to other parts of the world. And of course, Indian uh, pharmaceutical companies and the industry overall are deeply implicated and really the principal sources uh, of smuggling of tramadol, industrial potency tramadol to Africa and the uh, epidemic in uh, Africa. Um, we could speak about contraband smuggling, piracy, land theft, and squatting. Um, we could speak about toxic waste, sand theft, uh, heavily criminalized uh, begging that is often controlled by organized crime groups in Africa. With often forced this uh, in uh, uh, India, rather, with often forced disfigurement, a very strong element uh, of the criminalized economy. Obviously, forced labor. Uh, crypto um, um, fraud, cyber fraud more general. I want to just highlight water theft and smuggling 
where along with Pakistan, India has really the most advanced criminalized uh, economy around water with so-called water mafia as they are referred to in uh, India playing outsized role in um, illegal sourcing, illegal distribution, uh, corrupt uh, uh, practices, co-optation of water boards, and of course, uh, contributing to a vast uh, set of deeply problematic uh, water sustainability outcome. So th this review, uh, uh, does this sound to you like Nigeria, Italy, Mexico, Brazil, Colombia? Well, it should. Certainly the scope of these illegal economies, as well as uh, the use of uh, the, the, the links between politics and crime are very emblematic uh, of these countries. And of course, if one looks across these countries, the levels of violence vary greatly. Um, Italian mafia groups are as involved in politics, dominate um, extortion, are often deeply implicated in many uh, legal uh, economies, not just illegal economies, but by, are by and large uh, nonviolent. This, of course, contrasts with uh, criminal groups in Mexico, whose levels of violence is on part of civil war. So India is more uh, in the category of less violent crime. It's not uh, not uh, organized crime that is as peaceful as the Chinese triads, for example, but uh, less violent crime. But in the scope of activities and the, the numbers of actors, it very much resembles these countries. Now, there is nonetheless a high variance in the degrees of organization complexity and the presence of polycrime groups in India. And in fact, we don't have very many polycrime organized groups in India. What does it mean, uh, polycrime groups? This would be something like the Sinaloa cartel that is involved in um, uh, drug trafficking, extortion, um, uh, illegal logging, the capture of legal fishing industries, the capture of legal logging that operates also from um, uh, Mexico all the way to Australia Pacific with a growing presence in Africa and Asia and very thick and often dominant presence in uh, criminal markets all the way down to Colombia, Ecuador and beyond. We don't have Indian, many Indian groups. In fact, we have no organized crime Indian groups that has as great uh, international reach and that often have significant uh, international reach. Often the greatest international reach in illegal economies uh, originating in India involves uh, legal actors, such as the pharmaceutical industry that behaves illegally, uh, or the gold and diamond industry. A lot of uh, criminal groups in India are highly uh, localized. They might be centered on Mumbai that we have heard about. They might be centered on other regions. So they're often not polycrime. There's still a great degree of specialization and their transnational presence uh, is limited. But it doesn't mean that the illegal economies in which they participate is localized, it can be transnational. Let me leave it at that. Thank you, Dr. Felber Brown. Your, your understanding of India and its illicit uh, markets are actually phenomenal, it's inspirational. I would say it also puts to shame Indian scholars such as myself that we have not been able to do this kind of path-breaking research that you have embarked on. So uh, thank you very much for sharing these insights, ma'am. Uh, we have now slightly under 20 minutes um, for Q&A. So I would invite the panelists in reverse order of which they spoke to please pose a question to each other if, if they have any. Um, uh, Dr. Felber Brown, would you like to go first, ma'am? Well, thank you, Prem. And you have been way too kind in uh, characterizing my response. 
And I do realize that I omitted speaking about policy responses, which I hope we will have a chance to come to. Uh, but let me ask a question to you. Uh, you have been way too modest. Uh, you yourself have done a very, uh, uh, very significant and very robust and highly impressive research into both the crime uh, terrorism nexus in India, which goes way beyond the uh, D company and uh, Dawood Ibrahim and takes place in the borderlands with Myanmar, takes place in the in the Punjab area, as we heard. And you have done a lot of work on um, various organized crime and illegal economies in India yourself. Please give us your take on some of the questions you're asking us. Uh, what are some of the key findings um, from your study? And why do you uh, believe there is not enough um, uh, attention uh, being paid both by Indian scholars and by international scholars? Thank you, Dr. Felber-Brown. I will, uh, I, I really appreciate the compliments. I will answer your question in due course. I'd like to quickly move to Dr. Milan Vaishnav. Sir, do you have a question for the other panelists or the, or the group as a whole? Uh, just a quick question for, for Ajay Sani. I thought his, uh, your presentation was very interesting. And, you know, for, for people, um, who are looking at India from the outside uh, and maybe for people inside too, Dawood Ibrahim has this larger than life um, uh, kind of mythology around him, you know, whether whenever there's some kind of a development in the organized crime world, some, somebody somewhere links it back to Dawood Ibrahim and D Company. Um, but my question is, you know, as, as we sit and talk here today in the year 2022, how would you characterize what his role actually is in the organized crime scene? Are we too uh, trigger happy to sort of put everything at his doorstep, or is there a good justifiable reason to, to keep coming back to this kind of singular figure? Thank you, Dr. Vaishnav. Um, very quickly, uh, I would like to move on to our next uh, speaker, Professor Galishiva. Would you have a question, ma'am, for the group or for any other speaker? Okay, uh, thank you very much. So, uh, all speakers are very interesting. My question is uh, to Dr. Judge uh, Sani. Um, your um, presentation is rather interesting. And uh, tell me, please, uh, are there any connections uh, with Maharashtra um, organized crime groups with other Indian states? Uh, and with uh, South Asian countries. Are there any representatives of Maharashtra organized crime uh, groups uh, in South Asian uh, countries? Thank you, Professor Galeshtava. Uh, Mr. Unitan, sir, do you have a question for the group or for any other speaker? Well, uh, Prem, I have a question for Dr. Sani, uh, you know, talking about the uh, how organized crime groups have kind of transitioned on to international terrorism, and the classic case of that being Dawood Ibrahim. Uh, but there are also such instances in Punjab. Now, this is an area that Dr. Sani has studied extensively, where uh, you have cross-border smugglers being used extensively, and the old smuggling networks, uh, uh, exactly the way they were used to land explosives in Mumbai in 1993. The smuggling networks between uh, uh, Indian Punjab and Pakistani Punjab women used by intelligence agencies. And how do you see this actually playing out? Uh, has it happened anywhere else in the world that uh, organized crime networks have kind of, uh, you know, segued into uh, uh, terrorist groups and, you know, being used by uh, intelligence agencies to kind of uh, wage covert war? 
Thank you, Mr. Nathan. Dr. Sani, it seems that you have drawn most of uh, most of the uh, comments and actually questions on this uh, session. But sir, do you have a question for any of the other panelists or, or the group? Yeah, Sandeep, I, I would like to ask uh, you because uh, you, you sort of uh, did talk about the corporatization of uh, crime or organized crime in, in Mumbai in particular. Uh, I'd like to sort of uh, uh, suggest that uh, you say that They've gone underground. In what pattern have they, or fashion have they gone underground? Uh, in some sense, I think Dr. Felber Brown had made a very important uh, set of observations that you see actually so much of this crime ongoing. Uh, have they gone underground in the sense of doing less? Or have they gone underground in the sense of doing far more uh, legal activity illegally, if you understand? For instance, mining is a legal activity, but they do illegal mining. Building is a, uh, a, a legal activity, but a large quantum of uh, violations uh, are, are uh, sort of uh, uh, engaged in. And these are facilitated with or engaged in by the uh, uh, organized crime groupings. So how do you see the texture of crime changing? Is it simply that they've just become less violent, gone deeper underground or something like that, diminished their activities? There is some sense. I, I think uh, there was also a, a suggestion by... Uh, Dr. Galischeva, that the overall quantum of uh, 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 the grey economy had had sort of diminished, so that that might also be part of the uh, dynamic. But I'd like to ask you, uh, how do you see the transformation of the texture of crime, particularly in Mumbai, because the others there is a whole whole range of other activities which are different from each uh, one state to the other. Thank you, Dr. Sani. We have roughly ten minutes for. Uh for the answers. Mr. Unitan, would you like to go first, sir? Since most of the questions are directed to Dr. Sani, perhaps you could sure, go first. Sure. Uh, thank you, Dr. Sani. Uh, well, the question is, yes, a lot of the Mumbai crime has actually become uh, white collar. They've, uh, they don't uh, feel the need to uh, shoot people in the streets as they once did 20 years back. As you know, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, for almost a decade, there were these very violent shootouts. There were gang wars. Uh, there were targeted killings of businessmen and film personalities who didn't pay up the extortion money. And that was the very, uh, you know, uh, 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 it was a growth phase of the underworld, if you can call it. And the underworld in Mumbai has kind of followed the pattern uh, as, as is the case with all other transnational uh, criminal groups across the world, organized syndicates, whether it's the mafia or the triads or... Uh, the Japanese uh, uh, crime syndicates, where they've actually gone white collar, they do a lot more of their business, uh, you know, businesses are legit. Uh, you know, as you know, real estate is a very large source of uh, income in Mumbai for, uh, you know, uh, the underworld. And that continues to be the case. So a lot of their uh, earnings now are from these kind of legit businesses. Uh, they are, of course, involved in gold smuggling and, uh, you know, uh, as they did once in the past, drug smuggling, gold smuggling, all of that still continues. But a lot of the legit businesses have now kind of taken over. So that's the reason that they are, uh, you know, not in your face anymore. And they're just a little below the radar, but they're all there. They're all well in uh, uh, well entrenched and they're still going about their businesses. The Chota Rajan gang is still there. They're still extorting money from builders. They are making their investments. Dawood Ibrahim's uh, gang and his uh, consigliere Chota Shakil, they're all 
very active uh, and uh, you know uh, conducting business as usual and you have this very unique phenomenon in mumbai of the offshore dons uh, which is you know thanks to the uh, you know uh, advances of telecommunication and uh, you know mobile phones and satellite phones you have dons sitting overseas whether it's in karachi or in dubai or bangkok controlling the uh, their their trade from remote uh, locations but that still continues in mumbai the underworld is still around like i said it's just below the radar a lot of it is legit and white collar thank you thank you mr anita and dr sani would you like to answer some of the questions posed to you sir yeah uh, dr vaishnav said uh, is daud ibrahim still as as central to the entire organized crime uh, 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 scenario in india as he was earlier Uh, he's important because he is essentially a facilitator more of terrorist activities than of uh, anything else, and he has become an instrumentality of the uh, uh, Pakistani state, uh, facilitating such activities. But I, I think it's very important. Uh, Dr. Felber Brown uh, gave you a whole range of uh, organized criminal activities that are ongoing uh, in India uh, even today, and uh, Daud Ibrahim does not play a very significant role in most of these. in fact uh, they are highly dispersed they are more and more localized depending upon uh, what opportunities are provided along uh, which particular uh, part of the country border areas are different sea uh, uh, ports are different so you you have a very very wide range of activities ongoing and uh, daud ibrahim though he still is important as a uh, link for certain of the most extreme kinds of activities uh, is not really uh, commanding the uh, uh, any very large proportion of the total uh, quantum of uh, organized criminal uh, activities and revenues uh, dr galishiva uh, you see as far as the uh, organized crime groups in maharashtra are concerned yes they have linkages in fact uh, uh, sandeep just mentioned several of them are now based outside the country Uh, others have linkages across uh, borders certainly into the the and uh, daud ibrahim is still a facilitator and substantial controller of the organized crime activities in uh, mumbai and hence those who are operating within mumbai are still uh, very very uh, uh, strongly connected with the daud network not only in mumbai but in the uh, in west asia in the emirates uh, wherever uh, the that uh, daud ibrahim network is there one of the points uh, i think that has not been uh, has been i, I think lost over simply uh, in the uh, brevity of uh, presentations is uh, you know uh, finance uh, hawala hawala is one of the most significant uh, activities and a facilitator of a whole range of other crimes a whole range of the gray uh, 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 or black economy functioning uh, of terrorism and the finance of terrorism uh, and hawala is a, a, a enormously important uh, element and daud is still a very uh, here i come back to the earlier question that daud is still a very uh, significant uh, uh, player uh, uh, or rather daud linked uh, elements daud himself doesn't do so much on uh, himself but there are uh, lieutenants who are handling uh, enormous networks of uh, hawala or uh, illegal financial transactions uh, globally as far as uh, sandeep uh, your question about uh, crime groups uh, transitioning in, uh, to terrorism or the other way around terrorist organizations becoming crime group i see more of a trend the other way around you know when degraded uh, uh, terrorist formations uh, tend to uh, take up organized criminal activities more and more 
because uh, the political objectives and the ideology and whatever they may have been propagating earlier becomes less important to survivor and for survivor uh, finance uh, becomes very important and then they slowly get sucked into doing nothing but criminal activity uh, i do not uh, see any to my limited i, I study south asia and to my limited uh, knowledge of uh, the subject i have not seen a comparable transition of an organized crime group to a terrorist formation uh, that we saw in the, the d company and the uh, ibrahim uh, principally i think because uh, by and large uh, uh, organized criminal groups are essentially profit driven they are not even the daud gang before the 1993 uh, incidents was a fairly secular group you will be aware of this more than i am uh, that they had uh, in fact many of these uh, groupings that now exist which are uh, uh, opposed to daud were hindu group, uh, hindu uh, operatives within the daud gang so uh, it's only because of the nature of communal polarization the uh, 1993 events the riots in mumbai that he actually makes that transition from a uh, financially motivated or profit motivated uh, organized criminal group to an ideologically driven uh, actor who engages in terrorism i don't think this is a, a natural transition i thank uh, thank you very much thank you thank you dr sani um, we we have some audience questions actually asking us first whether we could suggest measures to improve the discussions in india on the topic of organized crime and uh, also pointing out that the government and the bureaucracy is not really open to the idea of primary research um from well from my limited experience and this perhaps um, goes to what dr felber brown said i think one of the reasons we are not look we haven't got much research on transnational organized crime in india is because we're talking about essentially two phenomena here first there's organized crime which happens at the very local level it consists of various scams political groups mafias and so on and then there's the transnational component and as dr sani has rather you know fantastically articulated they're not exactly similar they don't overlap very strongly dawood ibrahim is not that important when it comes to india's domestic scene he's a very important as a terrorist and as a covert asset of pakistan but he's not actually significant uh, when it, when you look at the enormity uh, illicit economies of india uh i would suggest that the problem is that first no country really likes to have its own bots examined too closely least of all you know by its own scholars and and journalists and there is a tendency to sweep to sweep unpleasant insights and information under the carpet and and without naming countries we we all know that even in the developed world if you point fingers at a certain state and you say look this state has been found to be racist by a un report that state's ambassador will promptly deny it in the un um, sort of human, uh, council on human rights i'm thinking of specifically which a uh, certain country you can probably google it and figure out which one i'm referring to so that's one issue that we can't examine embarrassing stories another side is that transnational organized crime really does have a secret um, and national security component the british scholar mark galliotti writing in 2018 warned of a so called spook gangster nexus and i would actually think that's worth looking at the the nexus between intelligence agencies and uh, organized crime has been under examined but that plays a crucial role because organized crime can act transnational organized crime can serve to undermine states can serve to help uh, carry out paramilitary actions galliotti has warned about this 
and india faces this problem it has faced it in punjab it has faced it in kashmir in mumbai um india does not have a unitary state like china does there is no equivalent of the chinese communist party which can serve as a super mafia and which can control organized crime groups and instrumentalize them to serve the national interest so as dr felber brown very correctly pointed indian organized crime is very localized and that means actually that we lack the meta structure we lack a, a national level narrative and picture thank you for listening to this episode of the oc24 podcast from the global initiative against transnational organized crime this talk was just one of 85 from this year's 24 hour conference on global organized crime to get access to the rest head over to oc24.haysummit.com thanks for listening <laughs>